logical thing that at this point of the letter he's thinking most about his upcoming visit Titus I assume is bringing the letter with him and Paul will be following along a little bit later so he's planning this visit hoping this letter is helpful in correcting some things and so he says this is the third time I'm coming to you And then he says this thing that sounds like it's totally out of context. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It sounds like more like it belongs in some trial than it belongs in this verse. So why does Paul throw that in there? I think I know. Not everybody agrees with this. But I think he's been there twice. This will be the third time. And by the time he's seen it three times, their bad behavior, that'll be the decisive witness and he's going to crack down on those who haven't repented. I think that's the connection. This is my third visit. The Bible says two or three witnesses. I witnessed it the first time. I witnessed it the second time. I witnessed it the third time. And I'm not sparing anybody. Uh, He says, I have previously, previously said when present the second time, and though now is absent, I say in advance to those who sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. I will have had full opportunity to see what they're doing, and I'm not sparing this time. This time, I'm not holding back. Now, again, you wonder a little bit about what was he going to do? Well, what is he not going to spare? How is he going to punish them? I think that's a somewhat open question. But I would suggest strong rebuke, uh, decisive uh, exposing of their sins, possibly leading the group to deliver to Satan and not associate with that man like in 1 Corinthians 5. So he's going to in some way act very strongly against these, these disobedient ones in the group. 
if they don't repent. Um, and, and this is time. I mean, he's not, you know, he's been patient. He's, he's been visiting, writing, encouraging, sending Titus. And this is kind of the final, the final ultimatum. You know, shave up. But this is going to be a very painful visit for them. He says, since you are seeking the proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. You want proof that I've got authority and power from Christ? You may get more than you bargained for. That's what you want? I can provide you. You want power? I give you power. It may not be such a positive experience. But Paul is kind of calling their bluff. These false teachers keep saying, Oh, you write a bad letter. You know, a mean letter. But he comes here, he doesn't have guts enough to stand up to us. He won't confront us. You'll see, he'll come here and he'll just cower in the corner. He, he knows he's no he knows he's no match for us. Right. <laughs> just let him not repent. And and he'll show that. Again. Isn't it infuriating? He has been meek and gentle over concerns for them, and they twisted against him as if he was just weak and wimpy and couldn't do anything. That wasn't it. But I am amazed at his patience and his self-control and his willingness to keep loving them in spite of this. So, he says, for indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. We also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. As we've seen over and over again, the model is Jesus. Was Jesus power? Absolutely. With true power. Did he throw his weight around? Did he act like a smart aleck? Did he just, uh, you know, was he brash and bold and bombastic and violent and domineering? No. We mistake bravado for power. If you share my political views, you'll agree with that. You know, it's like, wow. We think somebody who just brags a lot and talks loud and throws their weight around wow they must really be something look at Jesus I mean that's the thing Jesus was the most powerful man if you want to call him that that's ever been on the earth but he didn't look like it Jesus was the Jesus who held the little babies in his arms he was the Jesus that you know, was welcoming and encouraging to the tax collectors and to the sinners that the people felt comfortable around them, was compassionate toward the needy. He was the Jesus who was meek and humble. Did that mean he wasn't powerful? He was the Jesus that they crucified. There's no time he looks weaker than that. They just did whatever they wanted to to his body. And hung it up to dry. But he was very powerful. Don't think that some display of arrogance means power. Jesus, Paul imitates Jesus. He's weak and powerful. 
He's not throwing his weight around. He's not trying to assert himself. He's not trying to big, be some big shot who comes to town riding his white horse and saying, yeah, I'm going to shoot up this place if you don't get straightened up. He's not like that. But but don't be surprised. Don't, don't be deceived in Jesus and imagining he's just wimpy and he won't deal with sin. He will. And he does. And so will Paul. So Christ's career was a pattern for Paul's ministry. You know, Paul would not have agreed with our model of the successful, you know, minister who's domineering and assertive and who just tells people where they belong and what they're going to do and he takes over and runs things and he makes sure that he gets his name up in front of everybody and all that that wasn't that, that's not Jesus that's not Paul but he's powerful he says you know you're testing people verse 5 trying to figure out who's authentic well test yourselves to see if you're in the faith examine yourself they've been examining Paul he's not the guy to be examined they're the ones with the problem the question is not whether Christ is speaking in Paul but whether Christ is living in them they're the ones that need to conduct a spiritual audit and he's challenging them to do that do you not recognize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test but what if they determine that they are authentic Christians well, I trust you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. They really cut the limb thereon off if they question Paul's apostleship. Because if their faith is genuine, Paul's apostleship is, he's the one that brought them the faith. You doubt his apostleship, then you doubt your own Christianity. If you affirm your faith, you vindicate the preacher through which you became believers. So if you're true believers, I'm a true apostle. There's not a lot of way around that for them. And, and, and Paul, here's Paul's situation. He has been ridiculed as a weakling in person. Just kind of like, that guts enough to, to confront. He won't stand us down. Well, if they don't repent, he will. And he'll show them that's not true. But he doesn't really want to have to because he'd rather they repented. That's what he really wants. He wants them to do well. And so, but if they repent, he's not going to have the chance to show off his authority and prove all those people wrong. That's what he'd rather do. He, he, he doesn't really want to have to show off his authority. He doesn't want to have to convince them he's powerful. Do you see that? In verse 7, now we pray to God that you do no wrong. Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. If they do the right thing, he won't have a chance to show his strength. But he cared about them, not himself. He would rejoice when he loses the opportunity to show off his authority and his apostolic power because they've repented and he doesn't need to. Is it better when you don't have the chance to show how bold you can be in rebuking somebody? Or you kind of hope for the chance to show off that I can I can tell somebody off. Paul had a great spirit. He was 
not concerned about personal glory. He's concerned about the progress of the gospel. He's hoping the battle isn't needed. And and he says, we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. He's only concerned with promoting the truth. We rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. You know, Jonah lamented when Nineveh repented. For Paul, it will be a wonderful thing if the Corinthians repent. Will it mean he won't look so powerful and he won't look so, he won't really be able to disprove this idea that, well, you know, he's kind of wimpy? He doesn't care. He wants them to do well. That's all he really cares about. The purpose of this letter was to write sharply so he doesn't have to act sharply. He says in verse 10, For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. He's really hoping that by writing the letter, he avoids the battle. If he can bring about the repentance in the letter, then a face-to-face confrontation won't be needed. So really, he's kind of putting the question to the Corinthians. They can make this a pleasant visit if they want to. Paul is not insisting on having to rebuke them sharply, or having to discipline somebody, or whatever. If they repent because he wrote the letter, and he comes, and he's as meek and gentle as ever in person, he will be happy. He is not trying to prove himself to them. I mean, that's our problem half the time. We feel so insecure, we're just trying to prove that we are a man. Well, you don't prove you're a man by this bravado, this I'm tougher than you, I'm badder than you. You know, this male image, this macho image we've got, proves nothing. We do that even in physical ways. You know, we kind of get this idea of, well, the real man is the guy that can beat the other guy up. You know, and sometimes we'll do that with our children. I think it's a fallacy when we tell our children, you got to obey me, I'm bigger than you are. There's no way they have to obey me. There's nothing to do with me being bigger than they were. By the time he was 15, Kyle could have beat me up. Had nothing to do with it. He knew that. He respected me because I'm his father. Not because I was bigger than he was or had stronger muscles than he did. That doesn't matter. That doesn't prove anything. You think about it. Anybody got strong enough muscles to stop a rapidly moving piece of lead? You know? I mean, anybody could fire a gun, right? It doesn't take a whole lot of finger muscle to do that. You know, just saying, well, I can, I can physically dominate you proves nothing. Saying, I can out-shout you. I can out-insult you. Proves nothing. This, this fascination we have with power and violence is not godly. And it proves nothing. I don't care if you're stronger than I am. It doesn't matter. Because none of us are strong enough to stop a bullet. You know, so it's really kind of irrelevant. So, Paul is is really wanting to use his authority for building up and not for tearing down. And he really hopes that they repent to where that's what he can do. Comments and thoughts.
Jason. It really shows how far we've fallen uh, in respect to that idea. Because, I mean, we hear a lot of phrases that we Americans use a lot. Like, you know, if, if you want respect, you have to demand it. It seems like a lot of times, you know, if, if someone's not up to demand that respect, well, I'm going to have to leave. You know, you can't even, you know, command my attention or anything like that. Yeah, Jason's saying that we have this phrase, if you want respect, you've got to demand it, which is totally bogus. You will not get respect by by order. You may get submission, but you won't get respect. Reminds me so much of Hasmeris and Esther, who makes the decree that every man will be the ruler in his household. You will respect me. Right. You don't get respect by demanding it. Nobody does. You get respect by acting respectably. You may get conformity by orders. You think about it. Husbands, if you think the way to get your wife to respect you is just to issue the decrees, tell her off, tell her where to go and what to do. Wow. There's no respect in that. She may, she may be humiliated. She may be Unable to stop you, but she won't respect you. You don't get respect from your children that way. You earn their respect. I understand that with small children we need to discipline them. But, but you see, as children grow up, the children who have been raised on the basis of simply, I can make you do this, as opposed to building a relationship and a loving, trusting relationship. I mean, if you've got a, a teenage child, and the only way you get them to obey you is because I can beat you. Wow. There's no respect there. You know, it ought to be that you've taught your children the Lord. And they understand because of the respect for the Lord that they obey and respect you. And it has nothing to do with the punishment. It's because of the respect. Elders in a church. Sometimes they can intimidate and they can bully their way to, to getting people to submit to them. But if it's not a matter of their example and their life and their character and their love that makes us know that they love us and they're serving us and we we love them and we want to serve them, it's useless. We really need to think more about the kind of strength Jesus has. It's a humble, meek strength. It's not the macho strength. Good point. Other comments and questions? Yes? I find it interesting that this letter kind of acts as a microcosm to Jesus' entire life. Yes. Um, and just trying to provoke Corinth to sort of like act up before he has to come visit. Yes. Yeah, you do see this. Uh, he said that this letter is almost like a microcosm of Jesus' life. It's exactly right. You know, I mean, I think you'd say about that about Paul, that Paul really does imitate Jesus. It almost shows us in practice the kind of qualities and attitudes and heart that Jesus has. It's really accessible to us. I'm impressed in, uh, you know, there's that passage in 1 Thessalonians 1, which is kind of a disconcerting passage when you first read it. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. You also became imitators of us, and of the Lord? That sounds wrong. 
It ought to be, you became imitators of the Lord and of us. But they became imitators of Paul first. That's who they saw. And then of the Lord as Paul taught them the Lord. We are revealing the Lord to people by our actions. And often, they see us first. And the goal is that they see in our heart and life and character Jesus. Other thoughts? Look. We see this whole book, but if you look at it, we see that Paul's opinion is not that Exactly. Yeah, his whole point was building them up. That was his goal and all of this. That's exactly right. What a what an encouraging attitude he had then. wanting a crisis so that he can demonstrate his strength. Yes. Right? easier to judge others than to judge ourselves and yet the word is first a mirror before it's a window okay. how about 11 to 14 finally brothers rejoice aim for restoration comfort one another agree with one another live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you greet another with a holy kiss all the saints greet you Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have you ever noticed how Paul does these greeting sections? Some of them are really brief, and some of them were quite elaborate. Some of them don't, don't mention anybody, and some of them talk about everybody and their cousin. Do you figure out which ones are longer and which ones are shorter? That's exactly right. The ones he's most familiar with are shorter. You see why, right? The one that's really long with all those names is Romans. Because he'd never been to Rome. So he had a chance of establishing a connection with Rome by talking about all the people he knew. And I suppose he pretty much covered everybody he knew in Rome. How would you do that right into Corinth? As much time as Paul spent with the Corinthians. Where do you stop? If I started mentioning by name all the people that I love and appreciate in this audience, wow, I'd better not start that one. Where would I stop? What about the names I've forgotten? <laughs> you know, and all that kind of stuff. 
Now, if I just knew two or three of you, then I could probably do that. Or even half a dozen or a dozen. So, Paul here, pretty brief, finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. So he's encouraging them to prepare for his visit by maturing and joining together, working together, being unified. Paul likes these little brief staccato commands that really just sum up so much in a short space. And uh, he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. I think the idea is trying to promote again their unity, their closeness. Almost like saying, treat each other like family. You know, be really close to each other. Be, be affectionate toward each other. Uh, this is not some worship practice. You don't, uh, you know, now that we've had the Lord's Supper, we'll have our kissing moment. <laughs> this is a, this is a uh, salutation. This is a greeting. But it's saying warmly greet each other. Um, and, and then he says, all the saints greet you. Isn't it helpful to know that other Christians care about how we're doing? I understand that congregations are biblically autonomous. They're, they're independent. But Christians are part of one family. And there is a wider Christian um, group of people that, that's, that, that care about us, that love us. We are one body. We are one family. There are many churches, congregations that serve the Lord. We're not connected by some sort of hierarchy or organizational structure. But as brethren, we are connected by Jesus to each other. And we care about each other and we love about each other. And we need to emphasize that bond. Every once in a while you see brethren that have taken the independence of congregations to almost an isolationist view. And they don't see the bond and the closeness and the concern that Christians in the first century had for each other. They were ultimately one big family, and they loved each other like family, no matter where they were. There needs to be great concern that we have for each other, wherever we are. Um, You know, we tend to almost see if this makes sense. There are times that we seem to relegate Christianity mostly to stuff we do in the local church. But the majority of Christianity is our life that's not related just to what we do in the local church. And and so our relationships with brethren everywhere is a part of our serving the Lord. All the saints greet you. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I appreciate statements like that because of their emphasis on the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think it's a bit difficult to deal with concepts of God. You know, we're in over our head. But it does look to me like passages like this seem to reveal three co-equal beings in God. You know, I might struggle with that if it weren't for several passages like this. But I don't know a good other way to explain this other than he's seeing the threeness of the Godhead. But but his real point is, 
the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about what grace will do for them. It will eliminate self-assertion and pride and self-seeking. And the love of God, love destroys the jealousy and the anger and the quarreling and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That fellowship created by the Spirit doesn't leave any room for fighting and busting and feuding and factions. If they have the grace of Jesus, the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit, they will have the kind of unity they should have. Now did you notice again, um, you've got the peace in 11 and the grace in 14. So we went grace and peace in the beginning of the letter, now peace and grace at the end of the letter. And just a wonderful close to this letter. Thoughts and comments? I think he's saying instead of, you know, scrutinizing me, you guys need to test yourselves. The question is not, am I a true apostle? The question is really, are you true disciples? If they're true disciples, he is a true apostle. But but they're they're they seem more interested in trying to examine Paul than they are in examining themselves. That's my take. Awesome. You know, as you read through this letter and as they're reading through it, it would be really easy for them to say, Oh man, everyone's Paul talking about that person over there and that person there. You know, when we hear a sermon maybe we should cross our arms and think about all of the people that that sermon is talking about. And we never stop and think ourselves. But here Paul ends it with, this is about all of you. And like you said, it's had that unity and joy together and greeting one another the way that I hope to greet you. You know, Paul, Paul's intentions aren't to come there and beat them up. He wants to be able to greet them the same way as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. Yeah, good point. Yeah, it's uh, very important that we be examining ourselves and not others about this message. <laughs> Other thoughts? Alright, very good. Really great to do this. We're going to sing a little bit. And, uh,